0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: You're listening to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Rodriguez, a PhD candidate in history at Vanderbilt University. Today I'll talk with Professor Andrew Grant Wood about his edited volume, The Business of Leisure Tourism History in Latin America and the Caribbean, just out with the University of Nebraska Press. I'll also be joined by Professors Ana Romo and Elizabeth Manley, who each have essays in the volume. The book's 12 chapters look at the political, economic, and cultural dimensions of tourism in the region and its relationship to nationalism, imperialism, development, and many other themes. The volume also provides a new way of understanding the relationship between the United States and Latin America during the 20th century, showing how Latin American and U.S. elites and policymakers used tourism to create lucrative business deals, shape domestic and international politics, and bolster exceptionalist national histories. Wood is the Stanley Rutland, Rutland Professor of History of American History at the University of Tulsa. Romo is an Associate Professor of History at Texas State University and Manley is the Kellogg endowed Associate Professor of History at Xavier University. Drew, I want to begin uh, by asking you about the origins of this edited volume. I always feel like there's a, there's a really interesting origin story for an edited volume, how people get this idea. and also your own background in studying uh, the history of tourism. And how you're kind of thinking about that might have, has changed uh, after having uh, organized this volume.
2: Well, uh, thanks for that the The origins um, uh, more or less date back to a volume I did with my colleague Dina Berger on um, various tourism histories uh, to Mexico and uh, relating to Greater Mexico and, um, I forget the precise date, maybe 2010 or something like that. That that book um, was published by Duke University Press, and uh, that was really my first venture uh, into tourism studies, and more specifically, tourism history. Uh, Dina and I, and um, a couple of other people, uh, Alex Saragosa, um, Barry Carr um and uh john walton uh from the from the uh UK, BNA, uh castellanos um participated for um a little while in um what was called a berkeley tourism history workshop i think it was it was hosted by alex we we traveled out to berkeley and convened um two years in a row and at that time uh the 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 group of us uh engaged in uh, a very ambitious survey of the literature and um bringing together you know uh information uh contacts on people uh, not just in the u.s and in the uk of course but in 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 Mexico, in, in, in Chile, um, in Argentina, and elsewhere, uh, different folks who were working on various aspects of tourism history. And really out of that venture, which I was very um, fortunate to, to be invited to, um, I was able to, to inform myself and, and get a sense of the field and um, the, the potential for a volume, uh, such as the one we're talking about today. So, um, that is, that's part of uh, the backstory, at least from, from my own uh, vantage point.
1: Great. Thanks, Drew. Um, I wanted to, what, what the, the book is divided into four sections. Um, could you just talk talk a little bit about how you decided to divide it in that way? Um, and for for Anna and Beth, um, in terms of h- how do you see your kind of pieces fitting in within those subheadings uh, in the volume? Um,
2: well, I'm I'm going to try to be very brief mm-hmm. here, um, because um, when one looks at the table of contents, as I am right now, you know it's basically divided. Uh, into a couple of different chronological groupings. Mm. Um, And then uh, within that, there are a couple of chapters, Um, Mark Rice's chapter Mm. on Peru, um, my chapter on um, Veracruz, uh, Mexico, Mm. and sort of Mexican mid-century tourism more generally. Um, Ken Kincaid's Mm. uh, piece on... um, on um, this very interesting episode in in Ecuadorian uh, history. Mm -hmm, Anyways, mm -hmm. these uh, different chapters, as well as Rodrigo Booth's Mm -hmm. chapter on um, uh, Vina del Mar, uh, these all deal uh, with what we call domestic or national tourism. So that's a Mm -hmm. subset uh, and a particular, I think, strong theme uh, in the volume. But, of course, it's not the only theme. Subsequently, there are chapters, perhaps a little bit more international in scope. Evan Ward's um, piece on, on Guatemala, uh, Beth Manley's piece on uh, the Dominican Republic. Um, and then subsequently, um, we have um, a couple of pieces, I think, which are quite tantalizing. Uh, Rocio Gomez's piece on uh, on Zacatecas and the, the tourism uh, centered on uh, people visiting and and uh, going into the, the historic silver mine there. and then um, uh, F- Felix Manuel Burgos piece on uh, uh, dark tourism related to um, the Narcos mm-hmm. tours that have have developed, mushroomed perhaps um, in medellin uh, significantly as a result of the success of the Netflix, narco series um and um so you know i mentioned a couple but not all of mm-hmm. the the different chapters uh which i will spare you um but i'll pass the um the the wand here to to anna and and beth and and they can can add to um my sort of basic overview description of how the volume is structured anna
0: well, I guess um, I guess I'm in the international section, and, and in some ways, that's what probably you know, burgeoning international travel is is the first part. And I think in some ways that's probably yeah. what people are thinking about when they when they think about tourism. Um, my guess is that when when Drew invited me, I think I remember it, that he had hoped I would write more on Brazil, uh, which is where my research centers is, is on Salvador, and in fact, I am finishing a project on, on tourism and race in Salvador, uh, looking at kind of visual iconography in, in that area. But as part of that project, I felt like I had to understand the broader international currents. And so that mm-hmm. pushed me toward understanding what the Pan-American Union was doing during this time. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I was trying to kind of flesh out for myself and, and hopefully for others, Um, the kind of inner American interest in tourism that was developing over the 20th century. And,
3: and um,
0: and so I think, I think that first section kind of kind of tackles what in terms of international travel, probably what most people are thinking of in tourism, but I do think that's where this volume is, is really, um, is -hmm. really kind of, you know, forging new ground here. And that, the the second part is dealing with domestic tourism, which really hasn't gotten enough attention. Yeah. And then we have um, kind of more historians looking at more modern episodes as well. So, yeah. so I guess my fit is into a more traditional um, kind of framework of of tourism and yeah. trying to understand how it how it unfolded um, with different international players uh, involved in the process.
1: And uh, Beth,
3: yeah, um, I think the I, I really like the organization of the of the different essays. Because there's such a diversity of them, um, but they've been kind of organized so well, um, both chronologically and, and thematically. And it, it um, my piece, which looks at the development of tourism in the Dominican Republic, which is where I've done the majority of my work thus far. Um, it makes sense that it sort of goes into this post-war um, and and developing tourism across the second half of the twentieth century because if um, it, when you look at um, Caribbean tourism specifically, things really begin to take off in that post-war period. And it's kind of a a critical moment in which Caribbean tourism starts really to kind of um, develop the the boom that will come later. and Specifically, in the case of the Dominican Republic, it's really not until after the fall of uh, dictator Rafael Trujillo that the tourism business becomes kind of central to some of the things that the government is doing to advance the economy and kind of develop a, a national industry under under Joaquin Balaguen, hmm. the successor to Trujillo. Um, and so... In beginning a larger project on on women in tourism, I felt as though I wanted to start in the Dominican Republic because it was the place Mm. I knew best, even though I wanted to kind of spread larger across the Caribbean. Um, But I also kind of wanted to begin where where it began. (laughs) I think that's Mm. sort of logical. Um, So I started looking at the materials of the Balaguer administration and trying to understand the ways in which they were promoting this new industry, particularly in light of Cuba and the fact that, you know, after 1959, many of these Caribbean nations are kind of scrambling to take them take up the mantle of, uh, of that. <laughs> Not that it was the most desirable, but that, yeah. that they knew that there could be a place for them as as this playground for North American and, and European tourists and what that might, you know, help them be able to do for for the economy um, and other things. Um, and so I guess that, that is, it, it made, it makes sense for me to be in yeah, that yeah. section, certainly.
1: Yeah. Thanks Beth. Um, I want to come back to a, a lot of what all of you have mentioned, but, but first, uh, you know, as I was reading the volume, I think I agree Beth, that the, the organization has done very well. And, and certainly that the thematic groupings make a lot of sense to me, but like any good edited volume, uh, there, there are certain themes. I think that, that run through uh, the volume and connect many of the essays. And two of those that I found particularly interesting, uh, especially in in your pieces, um, is this idea of historical erasure in tourism. So the ways in which tourism is shaped, um, the way the tourism tends to um, erase either indigenous history or the labor exploitation, these kinds of things, as a way to market a particular... Destination uh, to make it more appealing, or to perhaps not necessarily erase the uh, history, but to manipulate and sanitize it. And this is something that comes up, especially in the, the dark tourism um, essays. But I think we could see that we see this in other instances as well. And then the second theme that I see throughout the volume in your pieces is this tension between promoting indigenous traditions and the simultaneous desire to to modernize. Um, I guess the question there is: Were these necessarily mutually exclusive? Um, and and what did that kind of tension between modernization and and indigenous culture do to the kind of national uh, the, the cultures in many of these places? Uh, the, the 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 playing out between those two things. So um, I'll just kind of open this up um, if you, if anybody wants to comment on either of these things how you see it fitting into your piece or just the volume uh, in, in general so the historical erasure and the tension between indigenous indigenous and and modernization traditions and modernization
2: I will comment just very sure. briefly because <clears throat> I think um, those are those are very insightful observations um, and I certainly don't have a <clears throat> You know, a, a fully developed uh, response. But um, what what strikes me about um, places and people engaged in "quote unquote" tourism development uh, is the fact that there is a a staging process um, inherent in in the development of. The industry and the infrastructure and all of the the the, the construction, um, uh, both literal and figurative, it, it involved in in presenting a place, and then, um, of course, uh, preparing a a place for uh, hosting uh, tourists, either uh, national tourists or international tourists, or or both Um, and you know, there are a variety of themes uh, that, um, that, that stretch uh, uh, significantly um, here. Uh, I won't name all of them. My, my work has been fairly, I think sort of foundational uh, in terms of looking, for example, at Veracruz, um, which is not a, never really has been a hotspot of international tourism. It's 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 not like Acapulco, uh, um, you know, which has managed uh, somewhat amazingly, uh, at least in in previous decades, maybe not so much today, to attract uh, an international uh, uh, jet set of of um, People, but in any case, uh, I argue in the volume that Veracruz is still a place where tourism development was undertaken uh, in the hope, of course, of of um, making money and of drawing um, not so much, uh, you know, sexy New Yorkers from Manhattan or 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 whoever uh, people from Paris uh, to to come, but um, just. Uh, more middle-class Mexicans um, who are uh, and continue to look for a place to go uh, outside of their, their, their neighborhood, their home. And if they can't afford to get on a bus or uh, drive over to the coast, um, they can have a lot of fun and um, a good, a good, uh, a quite reasonable middle-class vacation. Um, And so any, in any case um, you know this notion of um, of um, upgrading, of preparing, as I mm. said, of developing and marketing, mm. uh, facilitating and hosting tourism, domestic national tourism. Um, there's a history there. It may not be all mm. that exciting, but it, there's a history nonetheless in, in developing the infrastructure and the mm. the the the, the um, capability of um, of um, uh, Tourism. Um, Is there erasure? Um, That's a provocative notion. Um, Mm. I think, of course, there is to some degree, uh, simply in the repackaging, say, Mm. of um, local and regional histories, heritage, uh, identities, um, uh, customs, and all of this kind of thing, both indigenous and Non-indigenous and Veracruz has its own relatively unique blend of of African, Caribbean, European, and 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 uh, indigenous uh, um, sort of uh, traditions and identities and so on. And when one looks at the way Veracruz has and continues to be marketed, those identities, of course, are identified and. Um, Represented in in an attractive manner, and um, so I, again, I'm 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 not really an expert on on these sorts of themes necessarily, but 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 they're present. I think um, certainly in the the materials that I've worked with as a historian, um, and of course too uh, in any number of places at, at different times.
1: Thanks, true. I want to pick up on, uh, you've been talking, I think it's interesting you're talking about marketing, and this is perhaps, uh, this is a nice segue to for a question I have for Ana about this, which is, you know, in, in your piece, Ana, you're looking at the Bulletin of the Pan-American Union, and you're doing a close reading, a lot of, a lot of really interesting sources, um, issues of the Pan- Bulletin of the Pan-American Union, which is promoting tourism to Latin America. And, you know, a lot of times uh, we see... Um, Part issues of the Pan-American Union or graphics that you reproduce that are trying to, in some way, um, communicate or uh, translate Latin American culture to an American audience or an English-speaking audience. And so I guess I was thinking there, there's some kind of, um, you know, in in that translating process, a lot is lost and perhaps we might say a lot is erased depending on how how extreme it is. Could you just talk about um, that aspect of your, of your piece, and maybe just give us a little background on the Pan American Union.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think this this both of these questions are so interesting, but this question of erasure, I do, I do find particularly interesting and particularly important for for understanding tourism. Um, and I think in in my piece, I guess I'm looking at how the Pan American Union began as a as a group that intended to kind of promote commercial interest and particularly pushed by the United States, but embraced by Latin Americans as well, um, intended to kind of tighten commercial networks. And there began to be a more cultural agenda of of understanding as time went on. And so somewhere between these two things of encouraging commerce and fostering cultural uh, proximity and understanding, came tourism, which was kind of seen as uh, a solution for both of those problems in that you could, you could modernize your economy, you could bring in um, new, new revenue uh, with this tourist economy is, is what mm-hmm. Latin American elites were helping, were hoping. And on the other hand, they also hoped that kind of by, by getting people to Latin America, that they would they would foster a greater understanding and and move past some of the stereotypes perhaps that that Americans had, or or that people from the U.S. had, rather. Um, And I think in the the irony in some ways came from the fact that to promote themselves, they often resorted to some of the same stereotypes that they were probably trying to get away from. Um, And some of these included a kind of uh, you know, a land that kind of harbored uh, central traditions, particularly indigenous traditions. Um, and and this is an interesting place to think about erasure because on one hand, at the turn of the century, there was certainly an emphasis on modernity as, as we see across Latin America. And so even, even talking about indigenous culture as, as something to to come and experience in Latin America was I think a product of these nationalizing elite and these, these modern, uh, kind of the, the new modernism that was spreading across Latin America more generally. Um, but in terms of silences, you know, I think one of, one of the important silences to talk about here would be that black populations in Latin America were never, um, Embraced in the same way or talked about in the same way in terms of promotion in, in promoting a given region now I mean there are exceptions to this and I think The place I'm I'm most familiar with is Salvador Bahia in Brazil and I think that's that's really one of the most important exceptions um, But I just I just attended a very interesting panel on anti-blackness uh, that Bianca Primo organized for the AHA And, um, and so part of that, that panel was kind of talking about all of the erasure of blackness in Latin America. And I think we can certainly see that for the most part, even in the promotion of these indigenous traditions, it was always um, indigenous rather than Afro-Latin traditions that were, that were being kind of called out and and drawn upon. Um, So I think in terms of erasures, the the blackness in Latin America is, 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 really important there. And, and, and Beth may have more to say on that with um, Dominican Republic too, but um, so that would be one thing, but I, I think that this idea of, yeah, how do you, there's a tension in tourism, right? Which is that you have to really focus on only the positive aspects of an area. I mean, you're not going to bring people in by, you know, Having a, a realistic heart-to-heart conversation with people about poverty sure. or, or, or hunger or inequality, um, and so to some extent, of course, that's that's understandable. You know, you're going to get a rose-colored vision of a place in tourism promotion. But I think what makes it interesting is that that rose-colored vision changes depending on the place and depending on who's promoting it, right? So. So that's where I think historians can come in and really do some interesting things by saying, okay, yes, of course, we're going to get this whitewashed version, literally, in, in many cases, of a, of a location in tourism promotion. But what what's the agenda here? And how does it reflect kind of these local concerns? And how does it reflect these local demands, regional demands? How does it respond to international concerns? I think that's where you can get into these layers of understanding that become um, really interesting and, and complicated. And, and so in the case of the Pan-American Union, um, I found that, yes, the, the, the Pan-American Union and, and its, its U.S. side was often kind of resorting to simplified ideas of indigenous culture to promote the region. But interestingly enough, So were the Latin American elites who were promoting their regions. They were also resorting to these simplified versions of indigenous culture to to promote the region as well. And so as much as we might want to see it as, you know, there's this imperialistic vision of Latin America that comes through from these elites and is imposed on Latin America. Um, we have to see it as a more balanced and 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 negotiated space where in fact Latin American elites are are participating in these same processes and and you know if we look at i mean you know I think this is very clear in Mexico as I'm sure drew could talk about, but you know we if we could talk about the way that indigenous cultures are 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 drawn upon for tourism purposes and then forgotten when it comes to Public policy or poverty programs. I mean, this is—I think this is a very clear and, and important trend to think about: is how we can get these celebrations of culture in the realm of tourism that bring out very stark differences in the actual treatment of those same populations within the within the within the country's borders or within the region's borders. Um, and I think, I think that is part of that tension that you're pointing to, you you mentioned this tension between kind of promoting indigenous traditions and modernization. Um, And I think that these these locations saw tourism as a way to modernize, as a way to, to modernize their economies. In many cases, economies that had been trapped in primary exports or traditional agricultural pursuits. And so Tourism is seen as this this new way, this new path of out of those backward economies. Um, but the irony then is that to get into this modern economy, you have to promote the traditions that you're in some ways threatening or perhaps um, altering with this modernization process. And I don't mean to imply that that. Modernization is always antagonistic to traditions or or that there is such a thing as traditions Which are you know, untouchable and can't be changed But there is a tension there and I think you were getting at that in the in your question I think it's a very interesting a very interesting dynamic, right is how do you? How do you both? I mean just the whole idea of tradition, you know we have to remember that these are invented traditions to begin with and then how do you promote these invented traditions? Do they become static in the process? I think that's that's kind of you know a, yeah. a difficult thing to unravel, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I guess in 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 my study of the Pan American Union, um, what I was what I thought was interesting was that in many ways there was a a Latin American uh, modernist and modernizing elite that suddenly really in the in the 20s and 30s I think um, begins to see these indigenous traditions as not a hindrance to modernity um, in some ways at least in this tourism realm but as the key to attracting this, this new modern economy and, and so that's an interesting tension and dynamic for sure.
1: Yeah, And I think what you've said there about how historical erasure can provide us a way in, of understanding the kind of competing and contested um, interests of elites and non-elites in, in in domestic settings, and also how countries want to portray themselves or interact with elites or policymakers in other countries is really interesting. And something, and Beth, I found in, in your piece, there's this kind of glorification of the colonial past, the Dominican Republic's relationship with um, colonialism and a glorification of it for the purposes of tourism and a kind of an exceptionalist argument made as well about the kind of uniquely um, unique relationship that Dominican Republic had in relation to colonialism. Um, could you just talk a little bit about this this theme of historical erasure in, in your piece?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think these the these two themes that you've pulled out are are, are both really central to the work in this book, um, but also intertwined. And in, in my head, I'm kind of seeing them all them come together. Um, when I was looking through a lot of the materials on tourism development in the Dominican Republic, I kept, you know, of course, seeing these references to Christopher Columbus, and the and the one that you know, sort of struck me the most intensely um, was an advertisement for Hertz, um, the car rental, that said um, had a, a picture of the Columbus statue that's in, in in front of the cathedral in Santo Domingo, and said uh, Chris missed out on a lot, right? <laughs> As though if he had had a car, he could have you know seen much more of the island, and I thought, gosh. <laughs> This is fascinating. And the more I dug, the more I found this this narrative um, that was being pushed by officials, private and public, um, that enticed visitors to come and kind of explore in the manner of Columbus, right? that The Dominican Republic had this unique, as you say, um, story to tell, um, drawing on these lists of firsts um, the first cathedral, the first hospital, the first school, et cetera, um, and reminding potential visitors of um, their ability to kind of retrace the path of Columbus, right? Obviously, this narrative is sanitizing in the sort of extreme, right? And And it paints this picture of an idyllic um, encounter, right, that erases all the indigenous population and erases um, everything that uh, that happened within that colonial period that was destructive um, and um, and and just kind of presents this idea that the visitor can come and explore and discover in the same way. Um, and so I wanted to to really think about what that meant. Um, for for the development of an industry that would last, you know, as we know, into the present. Um, and so I I really wanted to to you know kind of em- emphasize how it this idea of a flattened. Um, narrative of national belonging um, ran from the beginning of the promotion of tourism. Right, it continues, and and I love Anna. Thank you for reminding me of that panel that I was also at um, at the AHA um, mm-hmm. because the the anti-blackness, um, the thematics of anti-blackness, right, ran through the history of the Dominican Republic, and this is yet another place in which in which we see that. Right, the um, though, those individuals that the tourist will encounter are exotic. They are interesting, right? But they are not Black. They are not, you know, um, they're they not talked about in any kind of um, dignified way, but they're these the sort of others, right, that are enticing and engaging. And so I think digging into the ways in which the industry is, is sold helps us to kind of unpack some of those um those legacies of anti-blackness, right, in, in the Dominican Republic, in my case, but across the region. And so that is a thing that I, um, I really want to be able to use this, this, um, this history to be able to do. Um, but I think also inherent in that is the tension that you talk about, um, because part of what is being promoted and the more I dig into the earlier history, the more I find this is the tension between the primitive and the modern. Um, And not that there is sort of that this tension exists, but in fact, it is inherent to the selling of tourism, Um, that what you are coming to experience as a potential visitor is precisely the tension between the, the quote unquote primitive and the modern, right? You are going to come and visit a place that has hotels that will make you comfortable and cars that will allow you to drive around the island, but you will also experience a place that somehow was stopped in time, right? Mm-hmm. That, that you are exploring like like Columbus, um, hmm. and I recently have been reading um, the uh, these columns from a woman named Ruby Black who was reporting on Puerto Rico in the 1930s, um, and she traveled with Eleanor Roosevelt to Puerto Rico to kind of inspect and conduct a study, as, as she re- said the first lady was um, doing, and in one of her articles after the fact, um, she Said of Puerto Rico that the island had, quote, wealth and poverty, beauty and squalor, lush plenty and starvation, astounding industry and inertia that showed themselves side by side to Mrs. Roosevelt. Right. Um, and so, yeah. from from all of the, you know, seeing this reporting and that the very juxtaposition of between that kind of idea of primitive and modern was central to the sale. Uh, at least in, in, from what I'm seeing of the Caribbean, right, that, that that tension is central to the product that is being put on offer. Um, and so keeping that, you know, sort of um, at the forefront of, of how we're understanding this, um, not just that there was kind of, um, that, that it, they were there opposing each other, but that they were, were part of what was to be attractive about these places, I think is really
1: important. Yeah, Beth, that that um, that advertisement that you mentioned, that Hertz advertisement, when I encountered that, I, I almost couldn't believe it. It was really just quite funny um, and insane to, to see that kind of weird marketing strategy uh, there. Um, and yeah, but very telling as well about this kind of theme of sanitizing this past colonial history. Uh, I'd, I'd like to move on to uh, something that's related to what we've just been talking about. Um, you know, as you read through the volume, um, you get a sense of one how tourism has evolved glo- globally in terms of the centers of tourism, but also in terms of the types of tourism. So, uh, in your introduction, Drew, you talk, you kind of give a nice overview of different types of tourism. So, you know, sex tourism. Um, Dark tourism or disaster tourism. Um, of course, you have this kind of luxurious tourism that we associate with many places in the Caribbean. Um, so there's this whole range of ways in which people engage with tourism and have each you know people having different sets of expectations and different experiences that they want. But I've noticed that throughout all of these, because we're trying to think how could we you know relate all of these, there is something. Like the, the idea of authenticity seems to run through all of these. So, you know, if you're interested in dark tourism, um, you know, you you want like a gritty, authentic experience in some way, or you want to recreate some kind of gritty, authentic experience. And the same is, you know, and and with Europeans, Beth, there's a kind of again this this idea of wanting to experience what it was like uh, this this authentic, you know, colonial experience and and then, of course, there are other ones which are just pure pure luxury in there. It's, you know, perhaps the authenticity element is not as strong, but perhaps there's kind of an exoticization element, people wanting to interact with mm, at least a representation of what another culture is like, but do it with all of the material comforts that they have, um, uh, perhaps in their, their home country. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. But geographically, of course, uh, the first piece shows, you know, we had this idea of the grand tour in Europe. And so Europe was of course a hub for, for tourism, but then we see kind of the geography of tourism shifting, um, across uh, through the volume. So maybe, maybe we could start with Andrew here. Um, could you just say a little bit about when you're writing your introduction, trying to think of the different types of tourism, how do you, uh, could you tell us a little bit about, about that kind of taxonomy of tourism and the different, um, uh, Desires of tourists.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, if I may, just uh, step back for a moment because I wanted to, to just add to what Anna and and Beth were saying, and, and particularly Beth with this very interesting marketing of 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 tourism in the in the Dominican Republic, and. Um, my my comment here is that in in a number of the essays here uh Mark Rice's piece on Peru and these national hotels that uh, were developed uh, as well as um Evan Ward's piece on uh Guatemala and the in the mm-hmm. area in and around Tikal as, uh, and as an archeological heritage site that was developed in the interest of, of promoting international travel. Um, again, uh, Ro- Rocio Gomez's piece on the, the, um, the mine tour in Zacatecas, um, and, and my own experience in Veracruz, uh, similarly, a, a very historic place. Um, uh, and and a place uh, uh, among others where history events in the past are are repackaged and uh, of course sanitized and uh, the proper amount of erasure and uh, refitting undertaken so as to offer tourists um, this encounter. I liked how you put that—an encounter with a representation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I don't mean to sound arrogant because this is what motivates me, to be honest, um, mm-hmm. as a tourist myself, and and part of the backstory of this volume is is um, uh, thinking about and thinking critically about what we do as um, North Americans, uh, as uh, as scholars, when we travel, when we go to conferences when we When we engage in quote unquote professional development, and we don't like to think of ourselves as as sort of um, uh, uncritical, uh, unsophisticated consumers, quite the contrary. but consumers and tourists, we are nonetheless. And so if I get to go to the Dominican Republic or to Brazil or to Cuba or Canada or Chile or wherever, um you know there are sites that are uh, are meaningful to me even though I realize that you know they're being developed and and socially and 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 culturally constructed and so on and so forth. Um anyways, um uh, different types of tourism this is this is um something that to me is really interesting um as a tourist as a scholar as a historian um uh, all of the above identities all of those hats I wear at at different times and um you know the work of of Dean McConnell and of John Ury uh for many of us is is important because it hmm. it puts that mirror uh right up in front of hmm. our faces I'll just own it myself, my face, um, and uh, and 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 requires, you know, uh, a, a larger perspective than than might otherwise be the case. But um, wow, different kinds of tourism—they seem to uh, be metastasizing, <laughs> um, or better, perhaps, more positively, uh, sort of growing in all sorts of interesting ways. I sort of. Um, come down, uh, in the introduction in my own grumpy way, uh, on the side of, of sustainable tourism. I don't know if that's even possible. And this whole COVID pandemic is, is certainly an opportunity to reflect and to pause and to really ask ourselves, um, if we need to get on those jet planes, uh, quite as much as we think we uh, do, you know what I'm saying? Um, and and there's interesting mm. observations uh, uh in fact from outer space and uh, i was reading just the other day someone was saying they could hear the earth um uh, uh in a different sort of way we could hear natural uh, features of the earth uh whereas when the planes and the cars and the buses were all doing their thing pre covid um those those uh those uh, more natural planetary sounds uh we're we're drowned out by humankind and human society, but um, you know the the ethics of tourism, the questionable sustainability of tourism, mass tourism, uh, any kind of tourism. Um, you know, I'm rambling a little bit here, but but there are many many different reasons why people travel and um, and and. Uh, become and, and practice, uh, become tourists and practice tourism. And it's really not for me to judge. Um, ultimately, uh, I'd like to think, as I, as I just said, that we as a society, if there is such a sort of notion um, that we could be more gentle, we could be more kind, we could be more compassionate and thoughtful and mindful in how we consume. And, um, there's a hell of a lot of people out there who, uh, and we quote, uh, quite famously Jamaica Kincaid, who says there's a lot of people, um, who just don't have the opportunity, um, to even think about, mm-hmm. uh, tourism, much less, uh, undertake. And many of these people we see, uh, from the, the, the taxi window, the bus window, um, um, you know the tour window uh, as we're going about our little adventures uh, uh, catching a glimpse of columbus's um you know first uh, church or uh in my case uh, a cortez home in in uh, uh, la antigua veracruz i mean you could just walk up and and walk right into the the remains the ruins of cortez's first home uh, no. it's not a crowded site, uh, by the way, and hopefully it will never will be such. But in any case, you catch my drift. The ethics um, are are to be to be considered, I think, and and hopefully people will not to be preachy, but hopefully people will take that uh, with however many grains of salt uh, as they as they read about different histories. Uh, In different places, we certainly don't cover all of Latin America and the Caribbean, um, but we we have a good sampling of places and processes and themes, um, as you have very nicely pointed out.
1: Yeah, thanks for that, um, Drew. Um, I guess you know, I was just thinking as you were talking, um, you know, these different modes of tourism are not in any way mutually exclusive, and you often see, I think, in a given location what either different that this the one location catering to different types of tourists and also how one location like let's say I'll give you an example which is like Cuba the country I study um, and you know for Americans there's a now that you know Americans still can go to Cuba uh, even though um, some of the Obama era uh kind of opening up has been rolled back but There's a certain appeal for Americans because it is a was a forbidden place, so that's one kind of appeal. Of course, there is uh, for for others. It might just be the fact that Cuba still has a centrally planned economy and it's a communist state. So that's perhaps another vector of tourism. And then if we think back historically, when you know U.S. uh, economic direct economic control of Cuba, uh, you, you see a different kind of mostly in this kind of exotic location type marketing, um, in that earlier period in the kind of luxurious accommodations. So even in this one place, we see many different modes of tourism operating both historically and, and currently. And I think that's, yeah, a really fascinating thing. And perhaps also connects to this, to this ethical question, um, thinking about why one, how one is a tourist, what kind of habits and, uh, how they interact with the location they go to and the people there and how they interact with the local economy, a whole set of very complicated questions. Um, Anna or or, uh, Beth, do you you want to add anything there about this question of different types of tourism or or even the the ethical question, which I'm also interested in? Uh, Beth?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think we do certainly the people that look at, at tourism, we do a lot of work and I think it's important work to kind of think about these different categories, whether it's dark tourism, whether it's sex tourism. Um, um, you know, heritage tourism, uh, environmental tourism. I think these are very useful categories for, for analysis. Um, and they are also very useful categories for promotion, marketing, and branding, right? And if you look at um, even sort of the Ministry of Tourism files for any given country, I haven't looked at it um, for Jamaica, Dominican Republic, Um specifically, you see a lot of that evolution that we, we should be branding here, or we should be working on this. Um, uh, in the case of Jamaica, at one point, they say, we're not getting enough honeymooners. Um, and they uh, put together a package that they're calling the Jamaican dowry collection, or um, uh, promotion rather. Um, and it's encouraging honeymooners. So these categories are, are useful in in both of those kind of different ways, but on the ground, right. They are, they sort of all blend together. Right. I don't think people that are engaged in one kind or another um, as, as people working in the industry necessarily are thinking about those things. Right. And, and that those categories only, only go so far. I think it's, you know, central to say, these are useful when we think about them analytically, but also, um, does that how how much does that matter sort of when we think about how people experience um, uh, being a part of this industry, which can be so intensely extractive?
1: Thanks, Beth. Um, we're, we're kind of coming up on the the end of our time together, but I want what I wanted to end with is ask each of you. Usually on the New Books Network, we end with a question about what's your future, what are you working on now, what's the next project. Uh, but I wanted to ask it a little, in a bit of a different way, which is, you know, each of you have written a piece in this volume. You've been thinking a lot about tourism. We've been talking about a lot of these themes. I want to ask how you, what you, what you've kind of learned in this uh, about how, how you see this experience of thinking and writing about tourism as shaping perhaps some of your future work, whether it's directly about tourism or, you know, it's just an a kind of new lens that you're going to use in looking at that work. Um, what and more generally, like what does that do for historic historians thinking about tourism and using that lens and analyzing that, regardless of you know, because as I suggested and as we've been talking about, tourism touches on such a broad range of very important topics in Latin American history and indeed global history. So, what does it do for us as historians and you specifically? Um, maybe we start with, um, Anna.
0: Well, I mean, I think, I think it is a great way to, to, it's a, it's a great lens to use on a broader, broader way of thinking about history. And, um, the project that I'm, I'm just finishing right now, um, and will be published by UT in the fall is about, I decided to to look at all of these tourist guides that had developed for domestic tourism, actually, in Brazil uh, that came out of Salvador, Bahia. And, And what I found interesting about the guides was that they were kind of, they provided a kind of microcosm of changing ideas of elites. You know, these were elites trying to promote their region, their city in the best ways possible. And they started out doing that at the turn of the century in terms of modernity and whiteness. And by the 30s, as, as nationalism began to kind of think about race and, and national roots in new ways, uh, those promotions began to change. And when you get kind of the influence of, of more and more modernist currents in, in the art world and in intellectual worlds, um, the ideas of how to promote uh, race as actually something central to Salvador uh, became really different by the, by the 50s. And, and that in turn was in part because of the mobilization of the black population within Salvador itself. And, and so I started out interested in, okay, if we take tourist guides as kind of the ultimate, synthesis of how a region wants to be perceived how can we understand ideas of race and how they're changing over time through these texts and mm-hmm. for me it was kind of an ideal barometer right is that this is this is this is their way that they are trying to promote themselves to outsiders to to people who they hope are going to understand them so what does that mean in terms of how are they going to own their blackness, how are they going to own their experience with slavery and, and their reliance on slavery as a kind of fundamental, um, part of their origin story of, of, of the city and of the region. Um, and then what I discovered is that the text I was looking at, the text that I were, that I was looking at, um, they were illustrated. And so I ended up, kind of shifting gears to try to understand visual depictions of race and how those were being used in these tourist texts over time. Um, and I kind of stepped backward to look at postcards and, and um, some other really great stuff in the 19th century that I had not anticipated looking at, but um, and kind of the history of photography and race in Brazil, which got me into some very interesting stuff. But for me, it it kind of transformed into this other project, which has tourism at its core, but is actually, for me, um, more engaged with these ideas of race and ideas of Blackness and how those change over time. And so tourism kind of gave me a way to narrow my focus to a particular body of text and a particular body of, of production and kind of. Use that as a, as, a, as a, you know, kind of a stable way to examine these ideas as they unfolded over the, the first part of the 20th century um, and into the, into the later part of the, the century. And Salvador, I mean, the, the, the reason this story was interesting for me um, is that Salvador today really promotes itself as the, the black heart of Brazil or as a, a center of the Afro-Latin diaspora um, and has a very powerful demographic presence of, of descendants of, of former enslaved people. Um, and so there, it's, a, it's a really dynamic city. It's a really interesting city. And I wanted to kind of understand how these contemporary ideas of Salvador as a, a black mecca is the way it's sometimes described, um, how those became, how those were crafted in some ways by promoters and marketers of the city, but who were also drawing on local trends and um, local participants, and, and there's a there's a very dynamic process there at work. Um, so that's that's. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to keep going with tourism after this project or not, but it, it's it's been for me a really fun way to to kind of use use the lens of tourism to get into these other questions. Um, And it's, it's, it's been really rewarding so far.
1: It sounds like a really fascinating project and I look forward to, to reading it. Um, Drew, uh, what are you currently working on?
2: Well, I'll keep it, I'll keep it short here. I'm writing a book on um, colonial Veracruz. Um, But in terms of uh, tourism, what I like about tourism is is in part sort of what I like about the title of our book, The Business of Leisure. And Mm -hmm. I I can't remember how I thought this up. It's sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, sort of uh, Veblen-esque, you know, theory of the leisure class or something like that. But I like the business uh, uh, part of it. And the reason is perhaps – you know, when I, when I mention to people, Oh, well, I'm a historian or I work on Mexico and, you know, their eyes start to roll back in their head. Oh, that's nice. You know, and so on and so forth. And for me, um, sure. I, I'm, I'm a dedicated historian. I'm passionate about it, but, um, as a social animal, uh, and someone who, Who lives in a neighborhood and in a city and and, and has family connections uh, to some extent, you know, I want to talk and study something that really is important to people and sort of from the old uh, Jerry Maguire movie, you know, show me the money. You know, I want to show people and I want to learn first and foremost for myself. I mean, that's really why I'm in this business because I can learn new things and, and engage in some, some, you know, true professional and personal development rather than just punching the clock like I used to do. But if I can show people the money, um, and I think tourism is a way to do that, then uh, again, I'm not out to necessarily command a huge audiences or anything like that. But when you start talking about money uh, rather than ideology um, or sort of what for most people are are very esoteric historical scholarly topics, then you've got something that is um, you know, uh, robust and 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 uh, and and hopefully reasonably dynamic. So um I'm exploring right now the um theme, the the this sort of sub genre of uh, medical health and wellness tourism. And it's quite a phenomenon, as you know, in the contemporary realm. And um, what I'm playing with and basically just trying to read about and learn for myself uh, is how this so-called medical tourism and its various related sort of offshoots uh, has a, a past, a historical past um, and Beth and I have, have exchanged, uh, very preliminary preliminarily, uh, some ideas about people traveling, um, to Mexico and the Caribbean in the late 19th century in search of wellness, in search of mm-hmm. therapy, in search of vitality and so on and so forth. Um, and so, uh, it will remain to be seen, you know, how this develops, but, but that's a theme that um, apart from my sort of more um, uh, traditional sorts of pursuits, um, I'm working on now. So thank you for asking.
1: Yeah, thank you, Drew. That sounds, that sounds great too. Um, and we'll just end with, uh, with Beth here.
3: Um, yeah, thanks for that question, and I'm particularly grateful to the contributors and particularly to, to Drew um, because this article was the first foray for me, really, into a larger history of, of women in tourism development in the Caribbean. And so I am still um, deep, deep in this um, in this business of, of leisure as it is. Um, and this allowed me to start kind of thinking through some of the the major themes that are going on, um, in, in tourism. So I will, I will keep, um, working on those. Um, but what has really been, and I, and I think, I think tourism history is so engaging because it does, as Drew was pointing out, really allow you to kind of see the interconnections of not just the money, but the social and the political and the Inter-American, right? It it has this ability to really kind of combine all of those perspectives and to see them interworking and and to see them as something that is so very relevant to the present, um, uh, in general the present, but in our post-COVID moment, um, hopefully soon post-COVID moment. I say yeah. that with optimism. Um, uh, what tourism is going to look like after that, right? And so I think, I think looking through the lens of tourism history has a lot of um, potential. And for me, one of the most really compelling things, and Anna kind of touched on this is um, the element of imagery, right? imagery is so crucial to tourism and selling tourism. Um, and I think of this particularly at least for me, potent in the Caribbean and and what that um, very iconic imagery of a Caribbean vacation looks like. Uh, and I think that, really is a great push for historians to think more visually to think about what images mean and i'm not you know i'm not advocating for stepping into art history in any way or stepping on any toes in that way but to really think critically you know about those postcards about those ads um what they mean what they convey um and to to an outside world, right? I recently reviewed a book called um, uh, uh, Brand Jamaica, right? And what is, the, what is the brand that is being projected outward? And then how do people um, within country, right, who are for good or ill right, within this industry, how are they reflecting back? How are they engaging with those images that have been projected outward Um, Are they resisting? Are they co-opting? Are they changing? Um, How are they engaging with that set of, of ideas about their own identity, right? And I think there's a lot to learn within those circuits. Um, of of brands, quote unquote, and images and ideas about a place and its people that can be really fruitful and powerful for historians and other scholars and people who even just engage in tourism, right, to be able to think through those ideas, yeah. um, even if just kind of a little bit, right, to be a little bit more critical about um, the places they go if they do kind of yeah. if and when they do resume that practice.
1: Thanks, Beth. Well, Beth, Anna, and, and Drew, thanks for agreeing to talk. And it really learned a lot in our conversation. And I'm really looking forward to to reading the future work uh, and projects that you you mentioned.
2: Thank you so much, Stephen. It's really been a pleasure.
0: Thank you. It's, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having us. It was great.